Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton is a dam with Owen Evans, who is the chief executive of S4C. Owen, where are you from originally? I was actually born in Cardiff. And like one of your previous guests, Sean, I went to Brintav for a year. So I remember the, um, the Inglis. But then my parents moved when I was about four or five years old to Aberystwyth. So Aberystwyth is home. And that's where I grew up and lived all the time until I went to university. Where did you go to university? Uh, I went to Swansea. I had a great time there. What did you study? Well, funny enough, I went to do politics. I was uh, I was expelled from school. Had you been very naughty? Yeah. What have you done? I probably won't go to the expulsion, but it was simple stuff like do you remember the the, the photo, the, the the photo that winds round the huge school photo on one strip. Oh yeah. Young people won't, rem- won't know what I'm talking about, but I was the guy who was at one end and then appeared at the other end as well. So there was you know a bit of shenanigans, I suppose. I f- failed my A levels and then went to a further education college where I did biology in a year. I did economics in a year and I did chemistry sort of aside from a course they were doing. Uh, Did okay and went to uh, Swansea to do politics, but had really fallen in love with economics. And I was a day late registering and I sat down with this tutor and said, look, is there any chance of actually doing economics? And he took one look at my grades and said, well, I'm in charge of economics. Yes, why not? So I did economics and I've always loved economics since. Did you find yourself drawn into any particular school of economics? I'm probably more of a Keynesian than a, a monetarist, I think. But you didn't um, go down the Marxist route at any stage? No, I, I enjoyed Marx, I've got to admit. You know, he's often quite misinterpreted. I mean, you know, there are elements of capitalism in Marx, which people don't realise sometimes. Um, so, I, yes, I did quite like Marx, but I just liked the... I always thought economics really was philosophy with science. So I loved the philosophical aspects of it. And when you then graduated, you did your degree in economics, basically. Yes. When you graduated, what did you do then? I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I think most, like most young people, I didn't know where I was going to go next. My uncle was a lawyer, so I thought, right, perhaps I'll do law. So I applied for the legal conversion course and then the LPC. And I spent a year saving up to do those courses, working in Ratners in Cardiff. Uh, on the high street there, and I'm still quite friendly with some of the colleagues I worked with back from then. Selling crappy jewellery? Uh, selling crappy jewellery, yep. Uh, I remember, actually, I'd only just started when Joe Ratner went on record saying, I think we sold a pair of earrings that was cheaper than a, pe- a set of prawn cocktail sandwiches at Mark's. Uh, the company didn't last long after that. That's right. So you did your conversion course, and then what did you... What did you do then? What did you become? I, the, the one thing law did taught me, and this is no offence to lawyers, was I didn't want to do law. The LPC was a really good course, but I looked at, you know, what's, what's out there, what can I apply my knowledge to? And I ended up working in Liverpool for a company called E. Meredith Jones, who were cotton traders. And they were buying in cotton internationally and selling it internationally. 
So I did that for about a year and a half as a trainee trader, but I absolutely hated it. So I did that, and after probably about a year and a half, applied for a job as a researcher in Aberystwyth University, got it, and then spent four years in Aberystwyth, ending up as a lecturer and then head of the business studies degree scheme there. So I had four lovely years in Aberystwyth. It was time to move on from Aberystwyth then, I've got to admit, but I had a great time lecturing. I loved the lecturing, I loved the students. So, you know, a good time there. At the end of that, um, after four years, I decided, right, I'm going to try something else now. And I'd always fancied working for a blue chip. And this is back in 98 when, you know, there was a big hubbub around the, the creation of the Assembly. And at BBC, uh, BT was creating its first ever policy officer for Wales. So I applied for that. And um, actually, I applied for two jobs. I applied for that and I applied for a lectureship in Colombo in Sri Lanka. I got both. But in the end, because the, the Tamil Tigers were kicking up a bit at the time, I ended up deciding, right, I'll probably stick, go for the safe option, go work for BT. Uh, so I started working for BT, and I was there for 10 years. So I changed jobs, you know, periodically during that time, did a range of different things across BT. But had 10 uh, great years at BT working with, you know, fantastic people and learning a lot. And essentially you're working for um, Bainon. I was. You know, I can see where this link is going. I'm in an odd position where I've worked for two people in the household. So I worked for Anne, was the person who employed me, and um, you know, she was a fantastic person to work for. And I learned an awful lot through Anne, and the same as I did with Leighton. Um, and we, you know, we've been friends ever since. So it was a period that you know, BT was undergoing huge change. When I joined, you know, the, the, the view in the company was that broadband and all this stuff won't last. And when I left, of course, you know, broadband was at the heart of the company. Uh, and Anne and I did a lot of work around trying to make the case for rolling up broadband for Wales and then latterly right across the UK. And there was a contract that was uh, given, wasn't there, eventually to the Welsh Government? Well, the Welsh Government gave a contract to BT to roll it out. There was. I think they've had a couple now. I mean, the thing with broadband is, you know, just from a simple economics point of view, is that you could do 80% of the population for a reasonable cost but then it sort of falls off a cliff. I think, you know, one of the things we developed actually was a model where, you know, what I'd do is I'd look at exchanges across Wales and say some of these are commercial, we, you know, we, there shouldn't be any public intervention here. Some of them I called pre-commercial. You know, they might be commercial in a couple of years, but if you want to do them now, you might want to divvy up. Uh, and some of them were just clearly non-commercial, you know, they were never going to make money. You know, you might have 30 people on an exchange requiring huge amounts of work and, and capital work. Uh, and so we shared that model with, you know, whoever would listen. I remember appearing in front of assembly committees on it, uh, being interrogated by people like Phil Williams, who was frequently more knowledgeable about broadband and technology than I was. He was remarkable. He was a polymath. Yeah. No doubt about that. You know, a great man. I remember when he, he... I used to go for a drink occasion with Phil when he when he became an assembly member because we were two aggressive boys down in Cardiff. He used um, to play the saxophone in the coops. He did. And in his room, uh, for the first few months when he got the when he elected to the assembly, he, he slept in his room for quite a lot of the time. So he didn't cost the taxpayer anything. And in the corner of his room next to his, his cabinet on climate change and his cabinet on astrophysics and his cabinet on economics, there was a saxophone. And in earlier years, of course, he'd been um, kept under surveillance by MI5. Really? Yeah, as documents held in the National Archives subsequently proved. I remember writing a story about it for Wales on Sunday a long time ago. Uh, I think he was quite shocked. I think he knew, actually. He suspected that something was going on. He'd probably like that, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think they were, because he had a habit of, uh, 
working into the small hours, and then oh, he did. there was stuff where he was being followed at strange hours and that Good sort of God. thing going on. But anyway, you know, highways and byways of um, Aberystwyth. So BT, it still hasn't all been sorted out yet, has there? I mean, you, you talk. I about don't think the, it ever will. Yeah. Um, to a degree, simply because the economics of it is so difficult. I mean, you know, the government and others have, have used wireless, they've used satellite technology, things like this. Satellite, you know, it's fine, but it's not quite as good as having proper direct links. Um, wireless, again, is fine, but there are issues around using some wireless technologies. But, you know, the simple economics of rolling fibre out to tiny communities is really difficult. Uh, and sometimes you wonder, you know, if the government really wanted to do it, you're going to have to pay. Or they change the rules around universal service, for example. Something that there was always, I was my, one of my mantras is everything's always possible. You just need to look how to achieve it, I suppose. And then uh, you made another interesting move uh, into Welsh government, and of course Anne, who we mentioned as a husband, Leighton Andrews, who had become the education minister. Yes. And um, he did something which some people regard as counterintuitive in bringing in somebody you'd not actually worked in government before yourself. Mm. Were you approached to, 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 with a view to doing that job, or how did it come about? It came about after 10 years at BT, this is the Anne link again, I was asked whether I'd be director of BITC Wales, Business in the Community. Now, I'd been you know, a very small cog in a very big machine at BT, and I was given the opportunity, I suppose, to be a bigger cog in a smaller machine and really have to stand on my own two feet. And I still think working for BITC and working for charities was probably the hardest job I ever did. Now, that I always call those two years, really, my Kung Fu years, uh, for those of us who are old enough, because I literally just travelled Wales going to the poorest communities and working with businesses about what we could do to try and help them. And it always came back to skills. It always came back to getting people who were out of work skilled up and into employment somehow. And this was people from homeless backgrounds to whatever, you know, right across the, the spectrum. And I loved that. And I became quite friendly with a director general at the time, a guy called David Hawker, who was quite interested in some of the work I was doing and some of the criticism I'd given about, look, this is how the skills sector could probably get a bit more in tune with what's required. And, and I went for the job, you know, I wasn't really approached for it. Uh, and I suspect, I mean, you know, well, I know the, the headhunter told me, you're, you're a wild card. Um, but I was the sort of alternative candidate and perhaps it's always luck sometimes. I was, they were looking for an alternative candidate and I was it. So in the Department of Education, what did you find and what did you think needed to be done and how did you go about doing it? Well, the first thing that this, this, I suppose, gives you an idea of the state of education at the time. I was given the job, I think, in June by David, and he'd been effectively moved, or sacked, fired, resigned, whatever you want, uh, by the time I joined. So it was a huge period of, of real issues in education in Wales. You know, our GCSE performance had fallen back about 10 percentage points behind England. We had no real tracking of how the system was doing. It was a department that was really low in morale because we were being pilloried, quite rightly sometimes, in the press, to be honest. And it just seemed as if there was no way out of this. Um, it was, you get yourself, and particularly in government, where it is pressured, where you have a situation where there is so much work around just answering the day-to-day -day questions and fending off queries that you're not having time to sp and space to actually sort stuff. 
And so when I came in, you know, Leighton was just coming in, had started shaking things around. There's a new director general called Emily Roberts, who I learned a lot from, and a director for education, because I came in as post-16 education. And, you know, Leighton's big uh, challenge, I suppose, task for me at the time, whatever I thought about, you know, my ideas about revolutionising the skills system was around universities. And so you probably remember the uh, the pressure at the time and the, the rhetoric around reducing the number of small universities in Wales. Because I think at the time we had 11 universities, we had 20 plus FE colleges, um, you know, with a real patchwork of, of institutions with all the, head, you know, the overheads involved, competing for students, uh, competing for resource. And Leighton was very clear that he wanted, you know, he was, you know, he was the boss, he was the minister, wanted less bigger universities um, and a more rational uh, blueprint of FE colleges. So after two years in that job, uh, there were three less universities and I think the number of FE colleges almost halved. The FE colleges halved pretty organically. Um, they're a pretty mature bunch, I would say. The universities were slightly less keen on merging and things like this. There's a lot of pushback, wasn't there? Oh, an awful lot of pushback. You know, it's quite a quite a tough environment to work in. It's quite a bit nasty, doesn't it? I did get nasty, yeah. Um, but it's a great, you know, it's things like that that actually forge not just reputations, but they forge teams, they forge an esprit de corps, I suppose. Uh, and it was a great way of bringing a team together. I think one of my, my big things has always been to try and build good teams. You know, there's nothing like a good crisis to bring a good team together. Um, so we worked really hard on it. And we had some great successes. And, you know, I'm proud of what we achieved. You know, the University of South Wales came about. Um, Trinity St. David's with Swansea came about. You know, we sorted out what was a mess at the time the University of Wales. The FE sector continues to flourish. So, you know, we did some good stuff, I think. Um, and then after two years of doing that... Uh, Emir moved on, who was the Director General. I wasn't sure whether to go for that job, but I did in the end. And I became the Director General of Schools, and I became the, I think it was the sixth Director General in seven years, which again reflected the, the, the parlour state that school education was in at the time. So I took the same approach as I've always done. You know, I went out, I talked to an awful lot of people, we had some very close sessions with people from outside of government of what needed to be done. Um, and I think the biggest priority at the time for me was to create space, as I've, I've mentioned before, for us to be able to think and do some stuff that was more fundamental. What I did, and I, it took me a while to convince ministers to do it, was launch the Schools Challenge programme, where we, we tried to support the 40, teachers, 40 schools who were having the biggest difficulties turning around their performance. Because at the time, Wales had a huge tail of underperforming schools. And, and when you saw some of the GCSE results that some of these kids were having, you know, you, you couldn't tolerate it. Um, we really, really needed to sort that out. And, you know, government's famous for browbeating and, and hectoring. And I thought, we, we won't take that approach. We'll actually put some money behind this. We'll bring in some great expertise. Uh, and we'll work alongside these people to try and sort things out. Um, and I was very proud of some of the successes those schools achieved. So your perspective now on education, schools in particular, would be that lots of improvements have happened and the crisis, which it's been perceived to be, hasn't it, mm. largely as a result of the PISA 
results yeah. is on course to be superseded, if you like. I, I'd never take your eye off it. You know, I'm chuffed and I'm quite proud of the work that everyone put in around PISA, but I'm probably proud of the work that everyone put in around just standards. You know, it's a bit like Clive Woodward's book about rugby. If, you, if, you, if your performance on the pitch is good, you'll probably win. And I'm a big sort of advocate of that. And I think, you know, from the directors of education to the consortia, to the teachers, to heads, to assistants, everyone actually worked really hard, I think, to improve things. And some of it wasn't easy at all. Um, but I think overall, within three years of, of me becoming DG, we'd reversed that 10 percentage points gap with GCSEs in England, which was important. But it gave us the space to start thinking about the more fundamental and long-term things, such as creating qualifications, Wales, and having an independent adjudicator on our... On our remember, that, you know, the government used to be the judge and jury on qualifications in Wales, and I thought that was probably wrong. So we created Qualifications Wales, and we started looking then at, at really upgrading what was a fairly archaic curriculum for Wales. Um, but the, the, the changes in the curriculum were, were important for two reasons. One, it was a very archaic system. It was some 20 years, really, since the curriculum had been updated. But also it gave us, it gave us a reason to help refresh the training for teachers to make sure that we used the best schools to work alongside the schools that needed support sometimes, but that the teachers would actually be put at the heart of what we were trying to do and to come up with new ideas. And, you know, that there was resistance to that at the beginning because nobody liked change, um, but the whole ethos really was putting power back into the classroom, which I think, you know, we'll never achieve completely, but, you know, it was the right thing to do. And it was good to see, you know, just this week now that, you know, the, the number of schools in the green banding categories is, still continues to improve. I think Kirsty announced the um, the curriculum. It's, again, something you don't take your eye off. That has to be worked through properly, otherwise we could end up where we started off on. So it's been a big journey. These things don't take time. It was great to see. It probably won't surprise you that I spoke to people in the department the day before the PISA results came out, because I'm still interested. And, it, you know, it's testament to the work that schools right across Wales have done that the PISA results are finally turning around. Mm-hmm. Now a new challenge for you, which is uh, S4C. What drew you to S4C then? Well, I worked... After I'd been DG for about three years, I became Deputy Perm Sec at the Welsh Government, and I took over some other things like local government, communities, housing, things like that. And you, your purview expands and expands. And I'd been there for about seven years, and had seen the advert for S4C but hadn't really thought, you know, I know nothing about television, and I continue to say that. But I was asked whether I'd be interested in, in coming to work for SOC. So I did think about it, and I did explain that I really don't know anything about television. And fair play, they said that that's probably not what we want at the moment. So if you imagine, this is two and a bit years ago, SOC had committed to moving its headquarters. We'd committed to relocating our Cardiff operations, including our playout, which is the broadcast technology side of things, um, to the BBC's shiny new building down in Central Square. We had a review underway of S4C, which Arian Ogwen was writing, that was quite critical of where we were digitally and really moving into the types of new environments that audiences are moving towards. I got quite a good, strong digital pedigree, I suppose, through BT. I'd been in charge of IT in the Welsh Government. I was quite used to big programmes of change. I'm quite a good person with people, so I always spend a lot of time trying to get to know who I'm working with. 
And I think those are probably the ingredients they were looking for in someone really to take S4C what was quite a challenging time in just the scale of the change they'd uh, undertaken to take. So I came in, and you know, I've always been quite honest, You know, there was an awful lot of scepticism amongst the staff about the move to Carnarvon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they've been involved probably as much as they should have been in the decision. But you know, my, my view is always, look, the decision's made, let's get on and make it a success. And you know, hopefully that's what we've done. You know, we, we have moved the HQ to Carmarthen. We did it under budget and early. Um, I've recruited a load of really talented people in Carmarthen. I've managed to retain some of the people that I needed to retain from Cardiff as well, because you know the skills that some of the skills that we have are very very specific. And we kept the show on the road, so to speak. So you know, I'm quite proud of that. But I always said that I didn't want to be the person remembered for moving our HQ from Cardiff to Carmarthen, mm-hmm. which is why I'm probably as proud, if not proud, of the some of the stuff we've done off screen, on screen um, for the viewer. There'd also, of course, been some controversy in relation to some of the investments that uh, oh, yes. S4C had undertaken, didn't they? Were they? Yeah. Which wasn't good from a reputational point of view because, of course, as a consequence of the change in funding in 2010, uh, mm. a lot of the funding uh, that was available then is no longer there and uh, clearly the uh, company wants to say to people look you must keep us going and you must help us to thrive and then when you read stories about shall we say injudicious investments Mm. it doesn't exactly help the narrative Um, no so I mean obviously that was before your time essentially but have you managed to sort of um, pull things together in a sense and ensure that something like that doesn't happen again? So time will tell. I've got to admit, I spent my first six months in S4C sorting the commercial stuff out. Um, you know, I've learned long ago, if you don't sort something out in your first year, it becomes your problem. Uh, and I didn't want it to be my problem. So from winding up what I thought were the positions that were never going to deliver value for us, through to completely overhauling the governance of our commercial um, opportunities, through to just experience of the past, which is, you know, only invest or only put resource into things you understand. Um, Do you think that hadn't been going on? No, it hadn't. We decided that we were going, and you can see why to a degree, we we were going to help some companies that were pioneering the, the digital landscape, so to speak, and so money was placed into startups predominantly in tech fields that we didn't really understand. So, oh, blurt or something, is that? Yeah, I mean, blurt, you know, interesting business model. And, you know, in different circumstances, it could have worked. Um, but it was a case that we were investing in the riskier end of startups and without probably the requisite knowledge we needed to understand what we were getting into. Mm-hmm. So there was a load of things like that, and of course there was the lottery. Mm. You know, we, we got into the lottery in a big way. You know, the idea there, you can again sort of understand why the idea was there. It was, let's create a lottery, let's have the draw on S4C. That will bring in regular viewers. You can sort of understand it. But it did require the lottery itself to wash its face. And when I came in, you know, re- relatively strong financially, in looking through the, the books, in looking through the projections, in looking through what was being touted, you know, there was a fairly clear mismatch with reality. And we were hemorrhaging cash to it. So 
you're used to making decisions and we had to make a decision and the decision was we're going to get out of this. But I think we did it in a, a morally responsible way. I sat down, you know, the recipients, of course, the, for the, the money from the lottery were the, the charity. Uh, and I sat down with the charity's trustees. I've always a big, you know, big exponent of sitting down and fronting people up. And we sat down, we talked through it, and I said, look, we're not going to leave you in the lurch. We'll make sure that you've got the money to, to make sure the investments are made properly and that they're scrutinised. Um, but we are going to be winding this up. Uh, and we did that. We, you know, we, we helped them out to make sure that that happened. Uh, we made sure that all the people who put money into the lottery, the punters themselves, money was protected. <coughs> so the biggest thing for me, yes, we could have walked away from it, but the biggest thing was to walk away from it honourably. So we tried to make sure that all the people that were affected were dealt with properly. There was another issue, wasn't there, which is actually relating to the building in which we're having a conversation now, because um, obviously the intention was and is to move to Central Square into the BBC building. But that meant, what do you do with this place? Yeah. And that in itself created a problem, didn't it? Because I think it wasn't really possible to... There was a scheme which fell through, I think, wasn't there? Was there a scheme which fell through? Or oh. it was just difficult to Yeah, there was a, a no, it was a buyer. I think was that the case? There yeah, was a buyer. There was a buyer and yeah, there was a buyer. There was, you know we had to decide whether to sell the building or keep it. And we had an offer, actually, and it wasn't a bad offer at all. But the reason we didn't take it in the end was twofold. One, we thought, look, the market's a bit tumultuous at the moment, we'll see how things go. But the bigger strategic reason was that, if you imagine what S4's T does, it broadcasts a TV channel, plus other bits and bobs. There was going to be an awful lot of work underway on site, whilst we were still broadcasting from the site. And the worst thing possible that could happen is for the channel to go down. And so it was decided that, given the risk of one, a JCB putting a digger through a fibre, or that the move-in with the BBC was delayed, that the prudent thing to do was to retain the building. And in doing that, you then have to think of, OK, you can retain it for so long, but what are you going to do it when it's empty? Because we will eventually move out. And having discussed it with some of the tenants, they all said, look, if you continue to uh, operate the building, we'll probably take more space. So, you know, we talked, this is before, you know, we, we went to market or anything, and we secured extensions of leases and expansions of leases before we'd actually signed anything. So we've managed to let out already quite a lot of the building and the building is slowly, we're renovating it and literally as we're renovating it, we're, we seem to be quite ses- successful in, in renting the space out. So the decision was made on a strategic basis that you know we need to have a fallback if things go wrong. But also we thought we could probably make a commercial go of the building. It's not spectacular returns, but it's solid, steady returns that will come in and help the channel. Mm. Looking at the the content of S4C now, um, I remember quite a few years ago writing a piece when somebody had sent me viewing figures and some of them were pretty dire. Are you happy that that situation has been overcome? How do you get more Welsh speakers to watch S4C? Because I think there's quite a significant proportion who don't, or don't watch no, it very aren't. much. Yeah, right. why, why is that, do you think? I wasn't a heavy watcher when I came in. I think there's a couple of things behind that. The, the, the first thing is that you know, there is a matter of, of trying to improve the programmes, and that's a, you know, people have been trying to do that since S4C was created. 
So, you know, we have been refreshing some of the older Crown Jewels, um, but also we brought in a number of new programmes, new formats, and, you know, we have a legacy of my, my forebear that, that, you know, we have a good pipeline of drama. And I think S4C has made a good name for itself in drama in the recent years. So by improving the quality of the programmes, by um, really specialising and building a reputation in other genres such as drama, but also in, in, in investing in things that people actually want to watch, so investing in sport, things like the Pro 14 rights, but also expanding it, I think we've been able to, to serve the audience as a PSB. Now, that'll get you so far, but you still have the problem that if people don't know what's on S4C, because they haven't visited the channel for donkey's years, then you've still got an issue because you need to bring these viewers in. Now, the two big elements for me in that are, first of all, your casual user, the person who sort of dips in occasionally. What we're trying to do there is, because more and more people now are using catch-up rather than watching on screen, we decided to, first of all, invest quite heavily in Click, which is our player, about a year and a half ago. When, when S4C had its big cuts, you know, about 10 years ago, and they were big cuts, I think we went to a, to a bit of a defensive crouch, uh, which is quite understandable, and we decided to retain as much of the money as we could for content, but we cut marketing, we cut IT, and we cut development of our digital sides. And I think that's one of the things I've slowly been reversing for the past sort of two years. So we have invested in Click. It's now a much better player than it was. We started bringing new content in, like box sets, which are now probably about 7 or 8% of our viewing for the, the Click player. But we're bringing in things like Walter Presents now. So it's giving a, a broader and broader range of content for people to watch but the key thing for me is that they have to register to watch it you know if you want to watch pro 14 online you can't watch it through iplay you have to go through click and that means i can capture who you are and i can capture what you watch and i'll never sell that data it's only for our purpose but it means i can start communicating to people about what programs they might like that are coming up what sort of feedback have you had well the, the, i think the best feedback it's always i'm quite big on metrics. I think the best feedback we've had, we now have emails out, you know, for example, I got one yesterday for the rugby and the Six Nations coming up. The click-through rate, the opening rates for emails typically are sort of sub-20% for these types of stuff. But the, the ones we're sending out for sports are verging on 50%. So we're getting very high opening rates for the emails and we're getting very good click-through rates as well. So if you think that we've gone from zero to 90,000 subscribers in people who've registered in the past five months, and I'm now being able to target what programmes they see to them individually, I think that's where we'll start getting our occasional viewers in. The problem was always was that you, know, you might turn in on a Thursday night and see a programme that you thought was really good, but then you might turn in on, on Saturday night and see something you think is ghastly. And I think now, instead of having to serve everyone on the main screen, I can, I can pigeonhole and I can send stuff out that you might like. The other bit we've done quite heavily since I've been here is trying to attract younger audiences. At the end of the day, we are here to make sure the Welsh language thrives. If we don't attract the Welsh language, the youth, then we're knackered. So we, we've got a very talented individual in charge of this who, who's really put young people in charge of creating content. We've trusted young people to a degree. Uh, and making the sort of content that you just don't see on the screen. So it's five to seven minutes, short form dramas of sixteen or 15 minutes an episode. The sort of stuff that um, when I presented to Merchela Wawr recently, 
three old friends and my mum came up and said, oh, that merched pachis, it was disgusting. And then one of them said, yeah, but it's not for us. And I suppose that's the point. It wasn't for them, it was for a different audience. And I'm very proud of the fact that through, you know, we've started off with some quite rude content, it has to be said, on, uh, on Hanch, which is our sort of uh, youth platform. That's now evolved into stuff on uh, environment. Uh, I've now paid for two apprentices at ITV to clip news, because, you know, trying to get news through to young people, as we all know, is quite a, a challenge. But it does mean, and, and I'm proud of the fact that we're now, I think, the only public service broadcaster in Wales that isn't losing youth share. Uh, and that's important to us. Do you see the future for S4C as healthy? And what is your view of um, the relationship with the BBC? Uh, yeah, I do see it's healthy. As I said, you can never get complacent, you can't take your eye off the ball. And there's still a lot of stuff I want to do here. But I think we, the content is better. I think the range of content and the fact that we are now broadcasting on YouTube, Facebook, we're using Insta, Snapchat, Twitter, we're starting to look at TikTok. You know, we're getting into the places where young people take our product. The, the structural stuff, fingers crossed, will all be done in a few months' time so we can concentrate 100% on the channel. But I will be doing a big campaign in the coming months of looking at how we engage with the audiences. Um, I really want to get out there and find out, you were talking about the people who don't really watch us. I want to find out why. I want to sit down with them and find out why. And not in a sort of anecdotal down the pub basis. I want to actually find out properly why. So that's going to happen. So I think we're in a good place. We've just had a new chair. And, you know, we're building on a lot of the work that's been done um, so far. BBC, you know, I've worked with BT, which is not a dissimilar beast. You know, these are big corporates. And we're, we're, we're like brothers, I suppose, in a way, in that uh, we're the little brother and they're the bigger brothers. And sometimes we scrap and sometimes we get on. They produce, you know, some great bits of our content. You know, look at, you look at Pablo Cum, you look at the sports provision they provide us. And, of course, they provide us linear news as well. So they're an incredibly important partner for us. We'll soon be relocating some of our staff to locate with BBC. Uh, they will be providing our playout, which is a massive technical challenge uh, as we move to new technologies and a new site. But of course, the relationship is going to become fundamentally important as of 2022 onwards, when S4C ceases to be funded partly through DCMS funding and all through the licence fee. So, you know, we're, 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 I think we're good partners. I get on with my, my operas over there. Um, yeah, we do scrap over some stuff occasionally. And I think one of the areas we will be working on over the, the coming years is, is our news provision. Um, the BBC hasn't got a, it, it has come review, but it hasn't got a, a strong track record on, I think, digital news in Wales yet. And that's one of the areas I really want to get into. Sometimes the relationship between BBC and S4C has been characterised as, as a power grab and concern has been expressed yeah. in some quarters, you know, about are they going to dictates to S4C the sort of coverage that there should be. I mean, they, there is a uh, an agreement, isn't there, in terms of editorial independence for yes, S4C. Yes. But do you think that's sufficiently robust? I think it is. Um, you know, there is one moment since I've been here where I felt that um, there's been any influence of any sort over how we commission, how we edit, how we whatever we do from the BBC. You know, we have the money that comes from the licence fee, which is ported through the BBC. I appear in front of their audit committee. You know, there's no interrogation about content. Um, we lock on occasionally on news editorial. Um, 
but journalists are journalists, as, as you know. But, you know, I have a very good working relationship with Rodri and his colleagues, and I don't think they even dream of, of commenting over um, content. And indeed, we, we have conversations with them as a supplier to, to S4C about what we want to see from the content they're providing us. So I think the relationship, you know, I've never felt any pressure coming from that direction, and I, I don't really see the pressure coming um, in the future either. We're, we're lucky that, you know, there is a strong feeling in Wales that S4C should remain independent. And I think whilst people will still support that, I think we're in a fairly safe position. Have you got any thoughts on whether broadcasting should be devolved to the Senate? Um, I've got to be neutral. I appeared in front of a committee on this last week for the Insomniacs amongst you. You can go and watch it. Um, what I said was, look, anything's possible. Uh, there are disadvantages to to changing the situation, the status quo rather, and there are probably advantages of changing the status quo. What I have tried to do, though, is is in our response to these, these types of uh, discussions is not to put out, look, these are the issues, because that immediately you know, you're getting into negative territory. What I've always tried to say is, look, you come up with your model, we'll give you advice on what will work and what won't work, but obviously you know, we're neutral on, on whether... It's, it, it comes down the M4 or not. We have a good relationship with DCMS. We have a good relationship with with uh, politicians in London. We have a good relationship with officials and politicians here. But the decisions over where things lie really is the preserve of politicians, and I'm, I'm happy to leave it that way. Oh, Evans, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.